Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, unlocking the power of Thinkorswim, the award-winning trading platforms loaded with features that let you dive deeper into the market. Visualize your trades in a new light on Thinkorswim Desktop with robust charting and analysis tools, all while you uncover new opportunities with up-to-the-minute market news and insights. Thinkorswim is available on desktop, web, and mobile to meet you where you are. It's built by the trading obsessed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Intelligence. Uber wants to be the Amazon of retail, of e-commerce. The Disney Plus service might actually end up benefiting Netflix. In-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. Capital return is the key story for the U.S. banks. The telcos naturally are moving into content distribution. I think it's a good move. Bloomberg Intelligence with Alex Steele and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio. Over the next hour, we're going to dig inside the big business stories impacting Wall Street and the global markets. Each and every week, we provide in-depth research and data on some of the 2,000 companies and 130 industries our analysts cover worldwide. And today, we're going to look at the tough times for some of the big industrials. Plus, which ETFs is the Fed buying? But first, the coronavirus pandemic is pushing hospitals here in the U.S. to the brink of financial ruin. For some insight into how much worse it's going to get, I want to kick things off with Glenn Losef, healthcare analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, Glenn, Paul and I have both been super excited for this segment for a long time. Can you walk us through how hospitals make money right now, how they're losing money right now? Hospitals are losing money right now, and hospitals are not making money right now. And it's happening because in second week of uh, March, mid-March, the elective procedures and uh, non-essential medical procedures started to be uh, deferred due to the uh, coronavirus outbreak. It started late in third quarter, so hospitals saw some of the impact, but the impact was not as substantial as we're going to see in the second quarter. Going forward, it's very difficult to predict because although some of the hospitals started to reopen uh, its closed-down services, so the elective procedures are logically should come back, the pace of this return is to be seen. My opinion on this, that it's going to take about a year for the hospitals to get to the pre-COVID-19 medical procedure levels. So the impact is significant, and uh, we'll, we'll see what's, what's going to happen. So, Glenn, I know, uh, you know some of the bigger hospital chains, they probably certainly have the, the balance sheet to withstand uh, the economic uh, challenges here. But I'm thinking about kind of rural America and some of these uh, you know, smaller hospitals, smaller chains. I know they were already struggling going into the pandemic. How bad is it going to get? Uh, just as a reference point, about 30% of hospitals in the United States pre-coronavirus outbreak were uh, operating at negative margin. And another 30% or so were barely breaking even. So only one-third of the hospitals in the United States were sort of sound financially. Going forward, I think while the uh, United States is in this fight with the coronavirus pandemic, 
uh, I think federal government will uh, keep the doors open and will do anything they can to sort of to, to keep hospitals operating. So far, CARES Act approved $175 billion to help in funds to help the hospitals. So while we're in this fight, that's what's going to happen. I think uh, hospitals will remain open, helped by uh, federal government. After the coronavirus outbreak is uh, contained, I assume that there's gonna be, there are going to be a number of bankruptcies, and especially in the smaller standalone facilities or smaller systems that have been struggling before that. Once that happens, there's going to be opportunity for financially sound systems to sort of to create uh, joint ventures or, or just uh, acquire struggling facilities and by doing that, grow its market share. So what are the longer term implications of that? Because from what Paul's talking about, I mean, those small rural hospitals, like they're not going to come back. So how, how does this wind up playing out on, a, on, a, on, the, on the scale? As where we stand right now and what we can expect that, you know, some of the hospitals will be closed. And obviously it, it impacts two things. First of all, it impacts the health of, of these geographies where those hospitals operate. And the other thing is, you know, hospital providers usually uh, provide about 17% of workforce in any given market. So obviously because if those hospitals do close doors, unemployment uh, in those geographies will increase, and obviously it's going to have a domino uh, effect on the financial health. So, Glenn, you mentioned the, I guess, the first round of fiscal stimulus included about $175 billion for hospitals. Give us a sense of scale. Is that enough, or will the industry need even more uh, in future uh, fiscal stimulus plans? Well, it depends on the um, on the speed of the medical procedures returning. But as of right now, so um, on annual basis, healthcare hospitals, the hospital industry generates approximately 1.3 trillion. Uh, the the hospitals received 175 billion uh, through uh, uh, CARES Act. So obviously it's helped, but my my feeling is that they're going to need more uh, to sort of to stay afloat. My view is that the federal gov- government will keep the doors open for while we are fighting coronavirus. Can you give us a good example of a hospital that's kind of doing everything right or was set up well to weather this kind of storm? Like run a hospital right now. <laughs> Right. So there are two premier publicly traded hospital systems. One is HCA, another one is Standard Healthcare. Standard Healthcare, uh, before coronavirus, was doing an incredible job. They uh, recently uh, brought in a new CEO and new management team, and they've been going through a very robust and focused turnaround, and they have been doing great. Uh, obviously, the coronavirus outbreak uh, sort of tempered this progression. But uh, longer term, I think Tenet is doing everything right, managing costs, managing, managing patients in geographies where they operate. So long, long term, um, I'm sure that they're going to do well. HCA, one of the biggest, if not the biggest, healthcare system in the United States, they know what to do, and this is not their first rodeo. Uh, so they've been doing great. But obviously, you know, if you looking, uh, if you look at the quarterly numbers, uh, because of what's going on right now in the country, the revenues and margins are pressured. 
All right. Thanks so much. Really great to talk to you, Glenn. Thank you. A Bloomberg Intelligence Analyst, Glenn Losev. Coming up on the program, a look at the impact of the pandemic on large industrials. I'm going to say it's not good, but we'll break into <laughs> it. Uh, you're listening to Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies in 130 industries. You can access Bloomberg Intelligence through BIGO on the terminal. I'm Alex Steele. And I'm Paul Sweeney. It's 13 minutes past the hour, and this is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Intelligence with Alex Steele and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio. Could be a rough quarter for some of the big industrial companies. That's the word from Bloomberg Intelligence for some insight into what's going on here. Senior machinery analyst Karen Ubelhart. Karen, thanks so much for joining us. Give us a sense of kind of when we think about big industrial America, I think Caterpillar, Deere, Ingersoll Rand. How are these companies dealing with the economic impact from the pandemic? Well, you know, as you know, it fell off a cliff rather quickly. And I will say that the companies responded actually pretty quickly, um, but we really haven't seen it hit that they had two weeks of bad, you know, bad demand in March, but it's really going to hit in April. The no- April numbers are starting to come out and they're down, you know, 15, 20 percent year over year orders. You know, they're doing the traditional discretionary cuts, um, you know, uh, laying off people, uh, you know, um, cutting discretionary costs, et cetera. But the Volume declines have not been seen since 08, 09. So um, it's really going to be challenging. I was impressed by the margins for a number of the companies in the first quarter, but it's going to get harder right in the second quarter. So here's a really fun pedestrian question for you. Like, who's winning, who's losing? As in, like, who was set up best getting into this and who was set up worse and how is that playing out? I think that's actually a good question because um, if you look at end markets, you could could be um, somewhat misled. I, one example I'd use is Honeywell. They have a big exposure to aerospace. It's about 40%. That's the worst end market and will probably take the longest to turn. However, they are very good executors. They started a cost reduction program last year when it started to get slow in 2019 and they simply accelerated it. They have some of the better margins and you know the ability to execute is extremely important and then on the financial side which is the second part of the concern they have you know huge they have on nine billion in cash they have one of the best balance sheets they generate a lot of cash flow so there are going to be winners and losers nobody's going to have fun but there is going to be a differentiation between the winners and the losers um itw another one extremely good executor they barely they had flat margins with with volumes down nearly 10 percent so you got, it's going to separate the you know, wheat from the chaff or the man from the boys or whatever you want to say, it's going to be execution. <laughs> so, so, Karen, you've been through many economic cycles before. You've seen how these big industrial conglomerates kind of react here. As a whole, are there some names? So I know you spend a lot of time looking at the balance sheets, looking at the cash flow statements, looking at liquidity. Are there some names or some sectors that historically, you know, have been, you know, at risk and maybe you're looking at a little bit more closely this time around? Well, I, you know, this is one of the worst downturns for aerospace, you know, um, at, you know, that we've seen, you know, even in history. I mean, you can see because uh, we're getting it both from the OEM side where orders are being canceled and and, you know, Boeing and Airbus had a six, seven year backlog, which is, you know, quickly, uh, you know, coming down. And then you also have traffic traffic just stopped and how when are people going to feel safe again to travel again so that is um relatively unique i mean aerospace has cycles they're long they're extended you know they're not a sudden abrupt stop like like this energy is another one that they have very deep cycles and they can come quickly Mm -hmm. this time they're getting hit 
you know, by the problems on the supply side, but now nobody's leaving the home and nobody's flying, and so we've got a demand problem, too. That's another one that's going to be bad. Um, you know, so the oil service companies are quite distressed, but if you look at the multis, Emerson's got the biggest energy exposure, but again, that you know, their costs are in very good shape. Their balance sheet is in very good shape, so I'm not really stressed about them. Of course, the one that stands out at this point is GE, because they get 60% of their earnings from aerospace. In GE, Karen hit like a, its lowest again since 2009. I say again, because I feel like I was saying that sentence like not too long ago. <laughs> Why specifically GE? I know they have problems. Larry Culp is trying to turn around the company, etc. cetera. Uh, but what specifically uh, drove them to that low? Uh, you know, I think it, I think it is concern about um, liquidity and aerospace are the two big problems. I mean, they have plenty of liquidity, but their cash flow is going to be very badly hurt by what's going on in aerospace. Um, mm-hmm. And he's done a lot of the asset sales, and you know what? You know what are they going to do to carry them through this? You know, one year, two year slowdown in aerospace. They've got earnings coming out of it. It's still it's still going to earn money. It's just down. Um, you know, they said at least a billion dollars in cash flow from aerospace. Healthcare is okay. Power is just stabilizing. So you know, the earnings and cash flow are going to be depressed longer than people expected. Um, however, they they have reduced a lot of debt. And they do. They have um, uh, ramped up liquidity and uh, done some refinancing on the debt side, et cetera. So, I'm not terribly concerned. Uh, you know, uh, um, at the moment, it's it's um, a question of how long that cycle stresses them. Karen, we've heard some reports uh, over the last several weeks that perhaps the Chinese economy is opening up. We're not really sure to the, the degree to which that is occurring. What are some of your companies and, and your contacts telling you about? what's going on in China? China is getting better. A number of companies have said orders are flat year over year. The demand side is coming back a little bit slower than people expected. So that's the problem. The consumer has to come back in some of these markets. You know, where the government is spending money and where they've stimulated those end markets are looking better, like construction. Mm-hmm. But on the on the production side, that is certainly starting to come back. For most of these companies, it's less than 10%, so it certainly can't drive the story. It's what's going on in North America and Europe that's going to cause um, more pain than China can make up. But China is improving. Uh, So talk about a different part of this, because these are such huge multinational companies, and what we hear a lot about are supply chains. You want to rejigger them so you're either at home or close to offshore, uh, protectionism, like retrenching, etc. And a lot of these companies, I feel like, make a lot of their stuff within the countries that they then sell to. So what's the trickle down? And one where area where it's really bad is, you know, certainly if Honeywell has their plants closed, anything, anybody that supplies to them is going to get hit. And a lot of it is local for local um, at this mm-hmm. point. The supply base for China is largely in China. The supply base for here is, you know, there are exceptions, um, but uh, largely here. And so it, it definitely trickles down. Now, most of these companies say oh, their their plants are open, you know, the 70 to 90 percent of the plants are open, but the production levels are so low that it's definitely slowing down. And the secondary smaller suppliers are, are seeing some stress. Karen, are, what are the, your big industrial companies that you follow, the multi-industrials, what are they doing with their liquidity here? Are they, are they cutting back on their dividends? Are they stopping buybacks? Or are they saying, oh, we can power through this? For the larger companies, dividends probably will not grow, but uh, I don't really foresee any cuts from the major companies. Buybacks stopped, 
M&A to the extent that it was going to happen has stopped. Um, you know, that may get looked at again if, if uh, since asset prices have come down, but not right now. They've shored up their credit lines. They've And some of them have extended ma- the maturities of some of their debt. So nothing comes due, you know, imminently. And then, of course, all the discretionary expenses. CapEx has been, CapEx has been cut pretty significantly. I would say in a lot of cases, R&D not so much because that's their growth. So it's the traditional cutting. And then because of the liquidity concerns, you know, working on the balance sheet to make it more liquid and, and, and you know, nothing coming due imminently. Hey, Karen, thanks so much for joining us uh, once again. Karen Uberhart, she covers all things uh, machinery and industrials for Bloomberg Intelligence. All right, coming up on the program, uh, what's the Fed doing with ETFs? You're listening to Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. You can access Bloomberg Intelligence via BI Go on the terminal. I'm Paul Sweeney. And I'm Alex Steele. It's 25 minutes past the hour, and this is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Intelligence with Alex Steele and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio. We'll be here each and every week at this time tapping into our Bloomberg Intelligence analysts covering some 2,000 companies and 130 industries worldwide. All right, well, ever since investors got the word that the Fed was in the market to buy ETFs, investors have been watching the move closely, figuring out where the Fed will go first. For more, we're pleased to welcome Bloomberg Intelligence ETF analyst James Seifert. Jim, thanks so much for joining us here. So as we think about the Fed coming into buying ETFs, where do you think the Fed will go first? Yeah, so, I mean, the data that we're looking at and the sources we're talking to seems like it's going to focus around primarily five ETFs. Um, Now, again, they're working with BlackRock to do this opportunity, but it's going to focus around multiple different issuers. So the first one is iShares LQD, um, which is just investment-grade corporates, then Two Vanguard ETFs that are also investment grade that focus on intermediate term and Vanguard short term. Intermediate term is just VCIT and VCSH is the short term one from Vanguard. And then also they've said that they're going to dip into the, the high yield ETF market. Now, most of it's going to be focused on investment grade, but they are going to buy some high yield ETFs. That's the big one, HYG from iShares um, and also JNK from State Street. So, Jim, are they just kind of st- looking at, you know, the most liquid ETFs out there? Is that kind of kind of where they're focusing right now? Yeah, it's it's likely that they're going to focus on the most liquid, um, the largest. Basically, the Fed's going to be nibbling um, at these ETFs. They're going to be buying small chunks in the secondary market. You're not going to see like huge footprints in the ETF flows or ETF volume. Um, so they're going to be focused on these ones with a lot of volume where they can kind of just be a participant and not really move too much things around. Theoretically, they could go to other ETFs, but at least we suspect that the bulk of the buying is going to be in these ETFs, and it's already started. So how, I mean, this seems really unusual to me for the Fed to be going into ETFs as opposed to the underlying securities themselves. Have you have you guys seen anything like this before? Yeah, so this has definitely happened in other countries. Uh, Japan and India come to mind. Um, they're even buying um, equity ETFs. So the Fed here is only focusing on fixed income. But by all means, this is a historic event for the U.S. This has never happened before. Um, the Fed is not going to be buying equity ETFs. Like I said, they're going to be focusing on fixed income. But uh, this, yeah, this 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 is basically a way for them to enter the market quickly um, and buy a broad basket of products and kind of put bids in the market. Yeah, it's interesting. So again, you you guys are not really looking for uh, the Fed to make a big 
move here, but have investors been trying to game this a little bit and trying to say, hey, I'm going to go, you know, buy this, uh, you know, BlackRock uh, investment grade corporate ETF LQD and trying to get ahead of it a little bit? Have you, have you seen some gamemanship in the market? Yes, absolutely. So when they announced that they were going to be buying ETFs, we saw, for example, LQD, like you mentioned, was trading at a pretty steep discount for what's normal um, for the fund, 3 4%. And then all of a sudden, it's trading at a huge premium right after the Fed announcement. Um, same thing happened with some of the high-yield ETFs. They were trading at a little bit of a discount. And then the Fed, I believe on April 9th, announced that they were going to be entering adding high-yield ETFs, and the same thing happened to those high-yield ETFs. Basically, we wrote a piece that said the Fed doesn't really have to do anything here because the market went in right after the Fed said they were going to be there buying. Everyone in their, everyone jumped to try to get in front of them, um, and the discounts and premiums went away. Everything was trading solid. There was less, um, illiquid, there was less liquidity issues, um, but I think this is more about the Fed just putting its money where its mouth is. They said they were going to do this, so they're going to go through with the process of doing it. So, okay, so if Fed comes in, what do they do with them? Do they trade them? Do they just hold them to, for, you know, for some duration? What do they do with them? Yeah, so, I mean, th- I think they're going to be holding them. Um, theoretically, there are some ETFs they could be buying that actually have expirations. But like I said, they're going to be focusing on the other ones. So it's just going to be sitting on their balance sheet. Um, and it's again, it's just to basically put bids in the market. There was a lot of liquidity issues. Yeah, it's interesting here. We haven't necessarily seen this in the past. So, what is the sense now? Now, now BlackRock is is advising the Fed here. Is there any conflict of interest there? That's a great question. So, one of the things that's in the in the filings when when we learned about this the secondary market credit facility is that. Um, BlackRock is going to be basically the Fed's not going to pick favorites, not going to pick winners. So whatever proportions that the BlackRock currently has in the market as far as market share, they're not allowed to disrupt that. So that's why it's not just iShares products being bought here. That's why they're buying Vanguard and State Street for the bulk of their purchases. And again, they could buy other ETFs theoretically. So, James, talk to us about the, the, the equity ETF markets. The, the Fed is saying that they're not going to go into equity ETFs. Is that a firm rule, or is that just something they're kind of thinking about right now? I mean, they're saying they're not going into them. Um, but I, like I said, Japan has done it. I mean, if you talked to me a couple of months ago and you asked if I thought the Fed was going to be buying ETFs, I probably would have said no. So I would never say <laughs> never. Say never. Um, but they are not going to do it. The other thing to note is that when they're looking at these funds, they are only going to be buying up to 20% of the funds, and they have a $25 billion facility. Um, so they're not going to be taking over any large majority of these ETFs either. Hey, James, thanks so much for joining us. James Seyfert, uh, our thanks for Bloomberg Intelligence analyst James Seyfert. He covers all things ETF uh, for Bloomberg Intelligence. Coming up on the program, some big changes taking place behind the scenes in financial markets, including passive to active volatility changes, new exchanges, and the economics of market structure. You're listening to Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. You can access Bloomberg Intelligence via BIGO on the terminal. I'm Paul Sweeney. It's 39 minutes past the hour, and this is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Intelligence with Alex Steele and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio. So lots of change to the market structure that we need to keep an eye on. Uh, we want to bring in Bloomberg Intelligence uh, analyst Larry Tab. Larry, 
Thanks for being here. Uh, you're new to Bloomberg Intelligence, so we're thrilled to also have you on the show. Uh, and you take a look at sort of the market structure, like I said. What have you noticed? What trends have you noticed uh, in the last few months as we've gone through this pandemic? Well, the first thing is the markets have been incredibly robust. Uh, when we went through the beginning, uh, early, late part of February, early March, we were doing three times the amount of trading volume that we were doing uh, basically through the whole uh, for the last three or four years. In fact, we, we reached uh, um, uh, 19 billion share day, I think it was February 28th or, or March 1st, uh, which was uh, a hair's breadth away from the record we reached during the crisis. And if you looked at the nominal value traded, uh, we surpassed record. We surpassed the record set during the crisis by 30, you know, 30% more than we've ever you know, traded. Almost a trillion dollars changed hands uh, on that day. Um, and we did it basically, you know, without a challenge. Now, now, there were a couple of folks like Robin Hood and a couple of other folks that may have had a little hiccup here and there. But by and large, um, all the infrastructure worked, all the all of the trading venues were operating, uh, and, and the volume flowed very smoothly through the infrastructure. So it's tremendous kudos to everybody building infrastructure and technology on the trading side uh, for the last couple of months. And we're still... Uh, doing volumes that have been um, very much over average for the last three or four years. So, Larry, I've been reading a lot about some new exchanges will start going live in the next few months. Give us a sense of what's, what that is about and what's, how's that, in, in that part of the industry changing? Yeah, there's some, there's, there are two new um, exchanges, actually three new exchanges that are percolating. Uh, two uh, approved by the SEC and one is still, I think, in the throes of regulation or, or getting approved. Memex was just approved. That's the members exchanged, and they, they are a partnership between Citadel, Virtu, a lot of the major institutional brokers, and actually they just added uh, BlackRock. Uh, they're, uh, one of the, the largest asset managers just joined as a member. Uh, so that uh, that was uh, created by a lot of the industry participants um, not very happy with the major exchanges and some of their technology and data uh, charge you know fees and so that's kind of a rebellious type um, movement into the markets. The second major player is is the Miami exchange uh, MyX. They started an options exchange I'm going to say five years ago. Uh, everybody kind of. Um, nobody really laughed at them. This is why we need another options exchange. And actually, now they are, if not the largest, the second largest uh, options exchange in the U.S. So, um, and they have very robust and, and extensive technology. And the third player is the long-term stock exchange, and this is actually um, uh, an exchange out of out of California and out of Silicon Valley, looking to try to help. Um, uh, you know, fintech firms, well, not just fintech firms, but startups um, become more robust and actually uh, move into the capital market. So three new players, um, two really kind of focusing on tr what you think of traditional trading, and one tr looking to try to help um, these smaller startup com companies raise capital and, and uh, go public. How easy slash hard is it to scale up a new exchange like how do you do it like do you offer low fees like how do you get people to come to you and build it up um a couple of things um you, what 
the game plan in the past uh, has traditionally been and what we think will be uh, the the strategy for Memex and, and probably MyX as well is offer uh, uh, big discounts, either larger rebates, basically pay people more to place their limit orders, or charge people less for taking those limit orders. And, and so it behooves uh, the traders, uh, they can make more money or, or in effect, uh, provide more aggressive pricing um, to trade on, on these new incentive-based markets. And then once the prices are better than uh, the other exchanges, the way the market structure works is the, the other exchanges are actually, um, they have to uh, send orders to the most aggressively priced markets. So if you can attract people to quote at tighter increments, then the other exchanges are obliged to send you that order flow. So um, the U.S. is different than Europe. It's a, it's a really different and much harder to break into the European markets. Uh, that said, uh, all you need to do is have a better mousetrap that uh, that incents people to quote tighter prices, and uh, order flow will just come to your to come to your door. Um, the other major uh, thing that is really important is the quality of the infrastructure. If you think about it, I am posting a limit order at, at Exchange A. Um, if it takes uh, more time for me to cancel that order or be able to uh, interact with a trading venue than it does uh, Exchange B, then, in effect, I can quote tighter pricing at Exchange B. Again, if I can quote tighter pricing on Exchange B, then more orders will go to Exchange B, and they'll be competitive. So the two ways that, that exchanges compete and attract liquidity are pricing structures um, and the quality and speed of their infrastructure. All right. So, Larry, I guess my, I'll ask the simple question of the day, which is, why are so many more exchanges being created? It seems like you know, more and more trading is going off exchange, dealer to dealer, uh, done over my Bloomberg terminal, whatever. Why are more exchanges being created? Is it just a function of technology? The, the, the off exchange volume has been actually surprising. Well, it, it's ticking up a little. It, it, um, it just it just recently, this last month or two, uh, peaked over 40%, but it's been 36 to 40% a little under 40% for a decade. It hasn't really changed that much. The reason why we're seeing new exchanges pop up um, is because they've all really been consolidated by um, New York. New York owns five exchanges. NASDAQ owns four exchanges. And the CBOE, which bought BATS, uh, they own four exchanges. So uh, there's really only one independent exchange, which is IEX. Uh, that, that exists. So um, the people who trade on these exchanges are, are uh, they're not happy with the way that they're being priced most uh, effectively really for data and infrastructure because um, they need high-speed direct data feeds and those data feeds have gotten very expensive. Uh, they need co-location facilities. They need data center space. So um, that's been expensive. They need access to the different markets. The exchanges charge uh, a fee for every port, um, or they charge access fees for all these guys. And um, now that they're all owned by three for-profit uh, entities, um, there's, there's the, the desire 
uh, to create uh, competition to get New York, NASDAQ, and SIBO to, to lower their prices, or at least not to raise them as much. This is also sort of a piggyback to Paul's question is, is there the appetite for all these new exchanges? Or is this going to be like, you know, who can raise the bottom in terms of fees, wins, the rest say bye-bye? That's a good question. Um, you know, if if we were back in the you know the old days where people were on the trading floor and you had to kind of you know talk with a human to get things done, um, then I would absolutely say yes. People people couldn't deal with all of the different interactions they were having. Increasingly, more and more order flow gets routed by a machine, and whether you know whether we're talking about thirteen exchanges or possibly sixteen exchanges, it really doesn't make that much of a difference. Um, because you know you're dealing not just with 13 or, or soon to be 16 exchanges, you're dealing with 31 ATSs, which are basically dark pools, and you're dealing with uh, 20 or so major brokers that can match orders off exchange. Um, actually, more than that, but 20 major ones. So your 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 you know 100 share Apple order can get matched at 70 or 80 different places. So whether it's 70 or 71 or 69, it really doesn't make a whole lot of difference. Hmm. So, interesting, Larry, I guess the question is, one of the things, when I see a lot of volatility in the marketplace, I hear a lot of people saying, oh, it's the machines, the algos are to blame. Give us a sense of how that's going. You know, I, I, I am not a big subscriber in that. You know, as the market speeds up and, and all the algorithms start trading against each other, you have different, you know, holding periods. So the people who are making markets, they're only holding securities for seconds, if that. Mm -hmm. So they can't they can't take million share positions, you know, in a second and get rid of them. So they're only trading in little increments. It's the people who warehouse, um, you know, these assets for longer periods that can accumulate larger positions or sell larger positions. It really influenced the market. The one thing you can say is that because the markets have sped up and the people actually making markets are buying smaller size, that that supply and demand um, actually impacts the markets greater. When a large investor comes in, you know there are fewer people on the other side of that trade, so that order can push that market or that the, the price of that security faster and quicker. Uh, than before. Larry, it was really great to meet you. Thanks for joining us. We'll no doubt get you back. A Bloomberg Intelligence analyst, Larry Tapp. That's this week's edition of Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. And remember, you can access Bloomberg Intelligence through BI Go on the terminal. I'm Alex Steele. And I'm Paul Sweeney. It's 57 minutes past the hour, and this is Bloomberg. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get Our Way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.